This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Shannon Bream. A solemn anniversary two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. Hundreds of thousands dead, Putin's army making gains, and all eyes now on Congress and whether lawmakers will sign on to billions more in aid. Without the aid, Ukraine will lose the war. But it appears House Speaker Johnson won't hold a vote on a Senate bipartisan funding bill. No, no sooner than a week from now, we will probably be looking down the barrel of a government shutdown over a spending battle. I think that it is absurd for us to devote so many resources, so much attention and so much time to a border conflict 6,000 miles away. We'll talk with White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who says the additional aid to Ukraine is vital. And South Carolina GOP Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who says it's a difficult sell to the American people. Then. Chicago. Crisis at the border reports this week that President Biden is finally considering executive action to try to stem the tide of migrants. Governors from across the country and political spectrum come to Washington to call for urgent action. It doesn't matter if you're a border state. We're, we're all border states now. We'll sit down with GP Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitz and Democrat Colorado Governor Jared Polis. Plus, I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Donald Trump wins the South Carolina primary, picking up 50 delegates and handing Nikki Haley another defeat. I'm not giving up this fight. Our political panel weighs in and looks ahead to Tuesday and battleground state Michigan's primary. All right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. Making headlines today, U.S. and coalition forces conducted joint strikes on 18 Houthi targets in Yemen overnight, striking weapons and missile storage facilities. The Iranian-backed Houthis have been attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea since shortly after the start of the Israel-Hamas war. In Russia, prison officials turned over the body of opposition leader Alexei Navalny to his mother Saturday eight days after the 47-year-old dissident died at a penal colony in Siberia. Russia's ally, Belarus, is holding tightly controlled parliamentary elections, which opposition leaders call, quote, a senseless farce. President Alexander Lukashenko has ruled the country for nearly three decades, backed by Vladimir Putin. In Ukraine, Russia's defense ministry says its forces have advanced further west while repelling Ukrainian counterattacks near Avdivka. In a moment... Our interview with White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. But first, let's turn to Fox News senior foreign affairs correspondent Greg Palcott live in Kiev, Ukraine, where ceremonies are being held to mark two years since Russia's invasion. Greg. Hi, Shannon. Yeah, Russia marked the anniversary, as you might expect, firing 18 drones and two missiles overnight at Kiev and other cities. We heard the sirens. Most were knocked down, but Russia's might is being felt here more and more. Two years ago this weekend, Russia's war against Ukraine began. After Vladimir Putin's missiles rained down, tanks rolled in, threatening Ukraine from all sides. 
That moment marked at a ceremony presided over by President Zelensky and other Western leaders at an airfield outside of Kyiv where Ukrainian soldiers faced down and turned back the Russians. Now with the war turning into a grim and deadly battle of attrition, with Russia making inroads along a long front line, Zelensky praised newly signed security pacts. We haven't had such powerful agreements before. It's very important. Whatever is promised in whatever volumes needs to be executed. Still some $60 billion in U.S. military aid remains blocked on Capitol Hill. Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was just here, leading a congressional delegation pledging to deliver for Ukraine. We will not abandon you. We will fight and fight and fight to get this needed aid to you. Assistance appreciated in places like Bucha, a town hit hard early on by marauding Russians, patched up now but still feeling the pain. On the outside, you see it's renovated, but inside it's still hard. And to the many who came this weekend to a memorial in the center of Kiev, each small flag representing a soldier killed in the war. It's a sad, big set. I hate uh, Russia. They killed our future. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry says it has an action plan for 2024. It can only say, though, that it's powerful, strong, will offer hope and deliver results. All those much needed right now. Shannon. Greg Palcott reporting from Kiev, Ukraine. Greg, thank you. Joining us now, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Welcome to Fox News Sunday. Thanks for having me. So we start with this grim anniversary, two years into the conflict, Russia's attack on Ukraine. The New York Times doesn't have an optimistic outlook, putting it this way Saturday. The forecasts are anything but optimistic. The best Ukraine can hope for in 2024, many Western officials and analysts say, is to simply hold the line. So what is the argument to Congress or the explanation to the American people now that the White House is asking for tens of billions more in aid to Ukraine? where the finish line thing is. I mean, how does this conflict resolve? Well, first of all, Shannon, let's take a step back. Two years ago this month, everyone predicted that Ukraine would fall in a week or two, that Russia would march into the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, subjugate and dominate the country and wipe it off the map. Well, that didn't happen. And two years later, not only did that not happen, not only does Kyiv stand, but Ukraine has actually taken back half the territory that Russia occupied in those initial months of the war. So a lot of predictions about a lot of doom in Ukraine have not borne out over time. There is not a shortage of bravery or courage on the part of the Ukrainians. Right now, there's a shortage of bullets. And the way to fill that shortage is for the Congress on a bipartisan basis to pass funding that will give Ukraine the tools it needs to succeed and to ensure that Russia fails in this brutal conquest. We believe they are capable of doing that. And in fact, the bipartisan Senate vote could be replicated in the House if the speaker would put the bill on the floor. Yeah. And you talk about the munitions. But J.D. Vance, Senator J.D. Vance is one of those. He warned in the Munich Security Conference that it's not just about writing checks, that we actually have now the inability to serve up some of the armaments and artillery that we would like to be able to get to uh, Ukraine.
Defense News has it this way. They say um, there's the issue not only with Ukraine, but now we've got Israel to worry about and China, the threat as well, saying our armed forces do not have the munitions needed for a contingency in the Indo-Pacific region. And we certainly aren't producing enough munitions to sustain operations in all three theaters at once. War games have repeatedly shown that the U.S. will run out of critical munitions only eight days into a high-intensity conflict with China over Taiwan. So what is the president's plan for rebuilding um, this gap now in weaponry so we can help our allies, we can protect ourselves? Well, first, Shannon, we have discovered over the past two years since the start of the war in Ukraine, since Biden came into office, that the cupboards were not as full as they should have been based on underinvestment over the course of the past 20 years. And we have been working since day one of this administration to build up the defense industrial base, to increase the production of critical munition systems. And three years into the Biden administration, we are producing significantly more than the day we walked into office. Second, this bill, this bipartisan bill that the Senate just passed is the best answer to your question. It contains substantial resources to enhance the production capacity of our defense industrial base so that we can build munitions not just for Ukraine, but also to make sure that the United States military has the tools it needs to deter any adversary anywhere in the world anytime. If we don't pass this bill, it is going to mean less money going to 40 of the 50 states of the United States that are currently in the process of producing critical munitions. We've got to get that money out the door. Okay, we're going to talk to you later in the show, uh, somebody on the other side of that conversation about why Republicans have their hesitations. There have been worried, worries about transparency, about accountability for tracking and following these funds. So we'll get to that. But I want to make sure that we talk about the sanctions that the administration levied on Russia, a new round on Friday. They've already been under what a lot of people would say were very crippling uh, sanctions. And yet what we hear from Voice of America is that the Russian economy in 2023 outpaced both the U.S. and Europe in terms of growth increasing in size by 3.6 percent, despite being subject to a wide array of powerful economic sanctions and being cut off from major global markets. Politico says this on Saturday, two years in, Russia's economy has rebounded. Its factories are humming. Its oil and gas sales are relatively strong. What is another round of sanctions going to do? Well, first, Shannon, I would just say that a lot of those top line numbers you're seeing are the product of a massive amount of spending by the Russian mili uh, by the Russian government on its military. And what they're doing is spending down the reserves they have, depleting the war chest they had before the war by half or even more. And that's going to come at a long term cost to Russia. Secondly, they are not able to replenish the kinds of basic elements of technology that could actually transform Russia into a 21st century economy. So they've got real challenges. That being said, it is true that the Russian economy has, in terms of its war machine, been resilient, and we need to keep chipping away at it. We've got to be relentless. So what this latest round of sanctions does is it identifies the banks and the other instruments that are trying to evade our sanctions to get resources to Russia to allow them to continue to power uh, their defense industrial base and try to cut off those sources of revenue, those transactions, um, those deals. We're going to have to do this day by day, and there's going to have to be more rounds of sanctions as we go forward, because this has to be patient, painstaking work. But inch by inch, we believe that we will reduce Russia's capacity to wage war and threaten its neighbors, and that is our intent.
All right. While I have you, I want to make sure that we talk to about what's going on with Israel and Hamas. Uh, the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has publicly released now his plan for when the war is over. Uh, this administration, the Biden administration, is very much about a two-state solution. It's something that Netanyahu is rejecting, saying it would uh, actually reward the terrorists, the barbaric uh, attacks on October 7th, and also leave them in a situation where they're going to constantly be at an existential threat. A Voice of America, though, says about these plans that are out there publicly, I'm sure the White House has looked at them, that they stand in stark contrast to Washington's vision for the war-torn territory, a sign of the deepening divide between his government and the administration of U.S. President Joe Biden. How deep would you say that divide has gotten? Well, I've seen the reports on this. I haven't actually uh, been briefed by the Israeli government on these issues. I'm talking to my Israeli counterparts later today to hear more uh, because they've gone, gone out in the press without coming to us to talk through all of this. So I'll wait and see. I have some concerns and questions about what I've seen reported in the press, but often what's reported in the press doesn't reflect the totality of what's going on. So I'll take a look at what they have to say. What I can tell you is this. The Biden administration's position on the best way to ensure Israel's long-term security, which is a two-state solution with Israel's security guaranteed and steps put in place to lock that in. We haven't moved an inch off that. That continues to be our view, and we're going to keep working towards that, uh, including in close consultation with the Israeli government. All right. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. And joining us now, South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Congresswoman, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Thank you for having me today. Okay, so let's pick up where we started with Jake, which is this idea of billions more the White House has requested in funding um, with respect to helping Ukraine. You've heard some Democrats out there say that the holdup in the House is actually helping Russia, that you're aiding Moscow. Our Brett Baer sat, sat down with President Zelensky uh, a few days ago in Ukraine, and here's what he said. We just want to live, to survive. We don't have alternative. We just want to survive. I think congressmen, just just people with their families, with their children, and I think they understand that we, we are just trying to save our houses with children. So what's your message to the people of Ukraine about why this is stalled in the House? Well, number one, we've given Ukraine over a hundred billion dollars so far in their endeavor to defeat Russia. And but this is what the left does. They don't want to talk about policy in Biden's failed mission in Ukraine. They want to say that Republicans are pro-Putin and pro-Russia when nothing could be further from the truth. What we really are is pro-America, our citizens and our national security. The one thing that you did not hear Jake Sullivan or Joe Biden say today or really ever is defining our mission in Ukraine. They have yet to define that mission. They have yet to set the strategy, and they have yet to articulate how are we going to get out of this situation when every dollar we have is given to their country and it is or is not successful. How do we get out of this? And you haven't heard that defined to the American people. You certainly haven't heard that defined to Congress. If we had the answer, we'd be talking about it, and perhaps there would be more support for it. But the last thing I want to say is that this administration is putting the borders of other nations first rather than our own. Before anything else happens with Ukraine and U.S. funding for Ukraine, I want to know is what are we doing about the invasion and our national security at our southern border? That should be the number one priority of Joe Biden and this administration, full stop. 
Well, and they say that they are trying to get something done and that you guys are the ones who are blocking it. Actually, um, they say, uh, the president, that you, quote, just went on vacation instead of staying here to get something done. The House has been out of session. Um, but that that criticism isn't just coming from the left. Here is your former governor, Nikki Haley, talking about that. The problem is Congress should have gotten in a room and kept going until they could get a strong bill out. Instead, they went home on break for two weeks. And then President Trump goes and tells them, don't get anything done until after the general election. So what about this idea, this criticism that President Trump is calling the shots? He's telling you guys what to do. You're not solving the border when you could. Heat from the White House and from the GOP. Well, first of all, I don't ever take a break. I work seven days a week, and I also don't take orders from anybody. I don't care if they have an R or a D by their name. But the truth of the matter is, and to fact check that remark, is that the House Republicans have sent over not one, but two border security bills actually very strong border security bills, including May of last year when we passed H.R. 2. It went to the Senate where Chuck Schumer has sat on it. He refuses to take it up. The second bill we did was a Homeland Security Appropriations Bill, which had strong, again, border security language in it. Again, he refused to take it up. And so we've started that marker. We've sent two bills over and Senate Democrats have refused to take it up and instead tried and failed to send over a mass mass amnesty, a massive mass amnesty bill back over to the House, which is not what the American people wanted. And you heard the American people stand up and speak out. And that bill died on the vine in the Senate, didn't even make it out. And so um, we've been working really hard in the House under Mike Johnson's leadership. And I want to commend him for holding the line on border security. We've got another, another very heavy lift because there are uh, the first batch of appropriations bills are due March 1st. That is Friday. This is after kicking the can, can down the road multiple times. And there are real concerns about where this winds up. I mean, Democrats have said they blame the infighting, the problems that the Republicans are having for not being able to get those things done. And they're going to blame you if there's a shutdown. Here is uh, Congressman James Clyburn. If this government shuts down, and people don't get their Social Security check, their retirement check, and people are laid off from work. They are going to have this laid right at the doorstep of the Republican Party, and we are not going to back up from that one bit. So Politico reports that there was a call, housewide GOP, with the speaker last night and that there was some frustration about the infighting. They say this, as the speaker works to defect policy, defeat policy demands from Democrats, and secure GOP priorities in those measures, he acknowledged that his deal-making power is undermined by the fact that a contingent of House Republicans now routinely blocks GOP measures from being debated with a simple majority bar for passage. Indeed, a letter out this week from the House Freedom Caucus with a long list of things they are concerned about. They have priorities that clearly, if they're in these bills, Democrats are not going to vote for. So what happens? Do we get these bills done? Is there a government shutdown coming? And how worried are you about the Republicans paying the price for that. Well, I've seen different factions, uh, you know, try to sabotage legislation, especially regarding border security. And it's kind of shocking to see that behind the scenes. But the fact of the matter is that there are laws in this country that Congress should follow, including the 1974 Budget and Control Act, which says Congress is supposed to, by law, have a budget, 12 appropriations bills to back up that budget. And that's what we should be doing. Now, House Republicans, we've passed 10 out of the 12 appropriations bills out of committee. Seven of those bills have passed out of the floor of the House. It's up to the Senate and should be to take those measures up, 
follow the laws in this country, and let's move forward. Those are the bills we should be negotiating off of, but instead, Senate Democrats want to take a different path. They want to blame everything, all of our failures on Republicans, but that's not the case. We're doing our job. We're following the law and trying to do our part, but it's up to Schumer, who's killed every endeavor we've tried to do to be responsible about spending this year, this fiscal year, and just killed it. Well, we know that there are things that have to be settled within the GOP before you can move anything now as a new batch of bills is due. We will track it. We understand there may be some word from the negotiators tonight about what they have moving into this week. We'll see you back here in Washington. Congresswoman, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Up next, President Trump's big win in South Carolina caps off a week that found him polling way ahead of President Biden on issues that voters tell us they care most about. Our Sunday panel is here to break it all down. Brand new numbers right after this. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. For the first time in many months. But here in America, the Speaker gave the House a two-week vacation. Failure to support Ukraine in this critical moment will never be forgotten in history. While President Biden points the blame at the Republican-controlled House, new polls show there's growing skepticism about his ability to manage issues of foreign policy and national security. Let's talk about it with our Sunday group. Former Chief of Staff to Mitch McConnell, Josh Holmes. Tiffany Smiley, former candidate for U.S. Senate from Washington State and chairman of Rescuing the American Dream. Fox News senior political analyst Juan Williams. And Susan Page, USA Today's Washington Bureau Chief. Welcome to all of you. you. So reference to this poll that came out from Marquette Law School this week, they give President Trump an enormous edge on things like immigration and border security, 28 points. Israel and Hamas, 15 points. Foreign relation, seven points. Um, Susan, that's a serious challenge for the White House on issues that voters tell us are at the top of their list. Immigration, a terrible dilemma for the White House. Uh, they want it, they've indicated they want to take stricter measures on the border. That creates problems with uh, more, more progressive Democrats. Same thing when it comes to the Middle East. You know, we'll have a first test in the Michigan primary on Tuesday of whether... Uh, to how much trouble President Biden will have with young people and with more progressive voters about what's happening in uh, Israel and on the Gaza Strip. Yeah, to that point, I want to bring up something that the president is worrying about this on his left flank, increasing criticism and calls for people from his own party to not vote for him, to vote for uncommitted. Looking ahead to that primary in Michigan on Tuesday, Politico says this, inside that critical battleground state, some Democrats fear the president's team doesn't appreciate the depths of discontent from Arab American and young voters. They quote one state senator saying, if the president doesn't change course, I would not be surprised if Biden loses the state in November. Um, I believe he won there by about 150,000 votes, won last time around. So it, it is a state you need in order to win. Yeah, I think it's one of about seven that I would say you can target at this juncture in February, saying is necessary for whoever's going to win in November. But let me point out that in some ways, you have to remember that Biden won as a centrist in the 2020 uh, primaries, and he won as a moderate, the anti-chaos candidate in the general election in 2020. So to have people on the left criticizing him in some ways uh, reinforces his image as not some kind of left-wing guy Uh, that I think a lot of people on the right would like to uh, caricature him as. 
And so for, for you have to keep in mind also, last three elections, I think it's more than that, they're five points apart. This is going to be a coin flip in November. It's going to be a very close election. And if you think of it in those terms, you think about the fundamentals of the race. And right now, the fundamentals, if you're sitting on the Biden side, don't look that bad. The economy, stock market set a record this week. But people Unemployment's aren't feeling it. Down. You know, we talk about I the, agree. the polls. But people I'm, don't feel it yet. Right. So the, the, but the, to my, my thinking is, if I'm running ads, and by the way, the Biden people have a big advantage right now on money over the Trump people. If you're running ads, I run ads about this is a great economy, jobs right now, unemployment, record lows. You know, you think about abortion as an issue and the IBF, IBF that's going on in Alabama. I'd run a ton of ads at suburban women. Yeah, and we saw, we've saw we seen that in a number of special elections and midterm elections and all kinds of things that that has been very successful for Democrats. Um, while we're on this issue of foreign policy, I want to play a little bit of uh, President Zelensky's interview with our Brett Baer and the discussion of whether President Trump should go visit him in Ukraine. First of all, why I said, please come. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see all the candidates and all the people who are decision makers or can support not to be against, just to understand what the war in Ukraine means. All right, Josh, given everything the president has said, meaning the former president, been critical about Ukraine, I can imagine the spectacle, though, if he showed up over there. I mean, what about the optics of that in a campaign year? He might. I mean, look, he outside the box an awful <laughs> lot, right? I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, he could do anything. But I, I think I have a little counterintuitive take on, on some of this. I know that there are Republic, uh, Republican politics here. People have wanted to distance themselves from the Ukrainian funding issue. But I think the security package in terms of where House Republicans should look at it, or it falls into the following category. If you believe Donald Trump is going to be president of the United States in January of 2025, do you want to hand over a world, a global place that is entirely degraded from where it was under a bunch of bad decision making that Joe Biden made? You're telling Russia that you're not going to support Ukraine. You're telling China that you're not going to support uh, Taiwan. And you're telling the Middle East that you have some reluctance about ultimately supporting Israel. That greatly limits the decision-making power that a new President Trump would have on the global stage. I think the government funding and all of that to be set aside for a moment, I think this is something that requires a fresh set of glasses for an awful lot of people who may have viewed this incredibly dimly over the last few months. Well, a lot of folks like me, over 50, and the candidates in this race need glasses. So we'll <laughs> see which set of glasses it ends up on this. Um, Tiffany, you've, you've navigated this as a candidate. There are real landmines for both sides moving yeah. through this year. You know, look, I think Speaker Johnson has a tough task ahead of him for sure. But I think um, he needs to follow two rules. Um, number one, do no harm. And number two, you know, focus on priorities that majority, most of Americans can get behind. Number one, we need to focus on, you know, we, we can't have a government shutdown. That's harmful for Americans and it's harmful for Republicans. And number two, you know, President Biden wants this Ukrainian funding then why doesn't he secure our border? I think he would have a lot uh, more support if he actually delivered results for the American people. You know, the president has one job, if anything, one job, and that is to protect the sovereignty of the American people. And he's failing that at every single turn. So let's secure our border. Don't tie it to any funding. And then as far as Ukraine, you know, we're in this mess because of Joe Biden. I think that's important to remember um, his, his lack of divisive, you know, being able to make a decision before Putin even invaded. 
um, you know, led us to the place that we're in now. And, and quite frankly, he hasn't laid out any success, any parameters, any metrics for why the American people should be writing blank checks to Ukraine. Well, and even members of his own party think it would be helpful if he came out and articulated that Absolutely. to the American people. So we'll see. Panel, do not go far. We're going to see you later in the show. But up next, the border crisis continues to spiral out of control. Now word that President Biden is considering executive action. Fox News correspondent Alexis McAdams is live at the border. She'll show us the chaotic reality next. So what do you think about these? The White House is insisting Republicans are the ones standing in the way of border security. President Biden speaking to a room full of governors Friday, slamming GOP lawmakers for refusing to support his plans. In a moment, we'll be joined by governors on both sides of the aisle who were there. Colorado Democrat Jared Polis and Oklahoma Republican Kevin Stitz. But first, we're going to check in with Fox News correspondent Alexis McAdams in Eagle Pass, Texas, with an update on the border crisis. Hello, Alexis. Hi, Shannon. Well, everywhere you look in Eagle Pass, Texas, you see razor wire and big fencing and the National Guard, like here behind me. It's a tactic the Texas governor says is working to slow the surge, as President Joe Biden is now reportedly eyeing what executive actions he can take. As the border crisis rages on, President Joe Biden now admitting the nation's immigration system is just not working. Over time, our laws and our resources haven't kept up with our immigration system, and it's broken. And our politics has failed to fix it. Biden touting his now failed bipartisan border bill, blaming the ongoing surge of migrants on what he calls petty politics. The Speaker of the House has refused to vote on the bill, even though, again, there's significant support. Just this weekend, hundreds of migrants from all over the world were dropped off in San Diego, California, allowed to travel to their city of choice. Atlanta. Atlanta. New Jersey. Donde? New Jersey. New Jersey. With America watching closely, the commander-in-chief now reportedly eyeing executive action on immigration. Speaker Mike Johnson says Americans will not forget that the president created this catastrophe, explaining that Americans have lost faith in this president and won't be fooled by election year gimmicks that don't actually secure the border. The standoff comes as police in Georgia arrested this Venezuelan migrant for the murder of a 22-year-old University of Georgia nursing student. Police say Lake and Riley had gone out for a run near campus and never came back. Jose Antonio Ibarra was in the country illegally, now charged with the young woman's kidnapping and murder. Sources telling Fox News that Ibarra crossed into the United States illegally back in 2022 through El Paso, Texas, then was released into the United States on parole. We have a, a real problem. Our country has never been this way. They've, it's never been so dangerous or so sick. So right now, that Venezuelan migrant, Shannon, remains in custody there in Georgia as the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, just wrote a letter to the White House telling President Joe Biden he wants more information on that suspect's immigration status, demanding answers and calling on President Biden to secure the border. Shannon. Alexis McAdams in Eagle Pass. Alexis, thank you. Joining me now, Colorado Governor Jared Polis and Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stick. Great to have you here together in studio with us. Um, you all have been at the White House and spending time with the president. Um, Governor, I want to ask you first, what has been the impact of the border on your state? Because we hear all states are border states now. And did you hear concrete solutions this week discussed? You know, really, we heard just a, a, a few excuses. And, um, you know, we believe that the president is the executive and he absolutely has the tools that he needs to secure the border. 
Um, we we want to reinstitute the Remain in Mexico policy. And I always always remind people there's a difference between immigration, which we all know that we need immigration policy and we need workforce. I'm, I'm actually for state-sponsored uh, work visas, uh, but we have to have a secure border. And we think that there's tools in the tool belt that this administration can use. Uh, but fentanyl deaths are up 500% in Oklahoma. Uh, we know that meth deaths, all those drugs are flowing through. And then you look at Chinese nationals coming through, people on the terrorist watch list. Um, there's certainly a bipartisan effort right now. All the governors I talk to all know it's a problem, and we need solutions, and we know what those solutions are. It's really to remain in Mexico and secure the southern border. Well, and Governor Polis, I know for you, one of your big issues is affordable housing. And you've been really pressing this in Colorado. We know your state. We had Denver's mayor on not long ago, talked about the tens of thousands of people who've shown up in Colorado. They're here illegally. The pressures on a number of states and towns, they're saying we just can't responsibly help and manage and house these people. How is the border affecting your ability to get some more affordable housing issues handled in Colorado? This is really an example of how we need to listen to to one another better, because this isn't a Democratic or Republican challenge. It's It's an American challenge. We need to secure the border, whether that's from the mayor of Denver or whether that's the governor of Oklahoma or Colorado. And, of course, uh, we need more border, border Patrol agents. Uh, Congress needs to fund them. Uh, Congress needs to fund additional border security. Of course, uh, when people are entering illegally and we fail to lock down that southern border because of Congress can't act, of course it will increase the demand for housing, and that only adds to the cost of housing in communities across the country. So while we're undertaking a number of efforts to remove barriers, to build new housing, reducing permitting time, cutting red tape, uh, we also want to make sure that we can secure that border to make America safer and to make America more affordable. So we hear this over and over again from the White House that it's about more money for more border agents and, and enforcement, which sounds good, but opponents didn't buy it. I mean, of, of what they saw coming together in the Senate, they felt like it didn't have enough teeth to it for actual enforcement. And there was there were work permits. There were other things that were going to draw people in under that framework. Yeah, that, that's the deal. I mean, let's focus on one issue at a time. It would be our would our, be our plan. And, and what I try to explain to people in Oklahoma, and I think it's important because I've been to the border several times with Governor Abbott, there's 28 ports of entry. It's already a federal law. It's illegal to enter the country anywhere but these 28 ports of entry. But what's happening is you've got people entering, and then as soon as they touch U.S. soil, then they're just kind of you know letting them in the country and giving them uh, uh, kind of free pass to all the services and just telling them to come back to a court date. Then they're blaming it on the court system that there's uh, you know seven five to seven year wait mm. period. Uh, so we do think there's solution, and, and unfortunately, politics gets involved in this city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but governors, uh, we get along very well, and, and we are more practical about, hey, let's just solve this. Let's put our heads together, and let's solve this issue, and then we can move on to uh, state-based work visas uh, to support the needs of our, of our communities and our, and our workers. I want to play something from another one of your fellow governors who was also at these meetings at the White House this week, uh, Governor Gianforte, who said this about what he heard. We met with the president for about an hour, uh, the first half uh, scripted off a teleprompter. Uh, we were allowed two prearranged questions, one from the Democrats, one from the Republicans. Uh, and the president's, you know, responded to it. Um, Governor Polis, how would you describe this meeting? Because when people hear it was a, t- a teleprompter, well, he's meeting with you guys, a group of you guys, several dozen of you in that room, and two prearranged questions. Was there a free flow exchange of information? Because that sounds like a very 
controlled meeting. Well, I'm not sure when the interview was because he actually took another question from actually Governor Gianforte. So after the two questions, there was a th at least a third question. Uh, and he just spoke to us from the heart. Uh, I think he was a good uh, free-ranging discussion with the president. He also uh, was with us when he entertained the governors and our spouses at the uh, at the White House last night. So I think, uh, of course, uh, he heard from many of us our concerns about border security. He has a plan to secure the border. Uh, I think we need to get it done. But we talked about a number of other issues as well. And, and the president and Dr. Jill Biden were very gracious in, in their time with the, the governors. Did you all talk at all about the budget? Because as state executives, you guys can't print money. You've got to get your budgets done. We're, we're staring down another potential problem of a government shutdown by Friday if we don't get a number of bills done. Um, any advice for D.C.? on getting, getting these budgets well, done. I think turning to governors is a great example. We balance our budgets. We deliver budgets to. on time. Absolutely. I think Congress can do the same. Congress should do the same. So uh, I hope that Congress can take a lesson from the states, balance the budget, keep the government open. Mm, how do yeah. you do in Oklahoma? Uh, exact same way that uh, we, we have to have a balanced budget. And I think we have to think, why is Congress not doing their job in passing a budget? Uh, I think it's been in the 90s. I think Americans are just super frustrated with these continuing resolutions and also the deficit spending. Uh, you know, if we if we bring in last year, we, the government brought in four point four trillion dollars. OK, so it's important for Americans to know, did they spend four point four trillion? No, they spent six point one trillion. That's unsustainable. Now, 25 percent of our annual revenue or your salary is spent interest only. So we're spending a trillion dollars a year now on interest on the national debt. It's unsustainable. It's not like a, a mortgage payment where you're doing principal and interest and you're going to eventually pay off your house or pay this debt off. We're doing interest only. It's never going to be paid off. And they're still spending $1.7 over what our revenue is. We've got to have an honest conversation. American people are super frustrated. Well, because none of us can run our budgets that way no. at home. And that's really a, a unified message from Democratic and Republican governors is Congress do what we do in the states, balance the budget, put America on a sound fiscal track. I mean, the state of Colorado has a $1.6 billion budget surplus, right? Uh, many states have budget surpluses. It's not hard to do. If you spend your money wisely, if you eliminate waste, uh, we've cut taxes two times. Uh, we want to do it again. Look at you guys. Hey. Uh, plenty of agreement there. Pl pl plenty of agreement. I mean, there's always, you know, con there's always people pitching a great idea. Do this government program. Do this government program. But if you don't have a a, gov a limit on your spending, mm -hmm. why not spend seven trillion, eight trillion, ten trillion? Your limit has got to be your revenue, and that's four point four trillion. And mm -hmm. so it's just common sense. Americans know this. What's going on in Washington, D.C.? We don't run our states that way. You can't. They shouldn't yeah. be doing that here. We'll see if anybody's taking notes this morning. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, Governor, it's good to have both of you with us. Thanks for coming in together. Thank good you. to see you. Thank you. All right, up next, come Friday, as we said, the government starts to run out of money again. So what is the plan on Capitol Hill this time around? And who gets blamed if the government actually shuts down? Our panel is back after a quick break. I know this might seem out of the blue. We've been having those conversations with congressional members. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that the speaker chooses to turn this into a political, uh, a political football here. The White House pointing the finger at House Speaker Mike Johnson over the failure of Congress to pass a border reform bill. We are back here with the panel. And let me put up another uh, poll for you here. This is Monmouth. Um, how is the president doing on immigration? 26 percent approve. 
71 disapprove, 71%. Um, Juan, that is not a good start for the White House <laughs> on something that people now tell us is their top issue up there with the uh, economy. Absolutely not good. There's no way to spin that one. I mean, but you got to keep in mind, again, that from the White House perspective, uh, they put forward a bill that, from their, from, uh, as they understood it, gave the Republican House exactly what they've been looking for, more border security, more personnel, uh, the ability of the president to shut down the border in the case of surges, and uh, even had support from a bipartisan uh, vote in the U.S. Senate, including uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate. And you had the U.S. Chamber, the border security. They all said, yes, this is a good deal. House Republicans said no. And I think for the White House, this says, well, now going in forward in the campaign, we can say they rejected a deal. Mm -hmm. Why'd they reject the deal? Because they prefer the political issue mm -hmm. to the political solution. Yeah, and I mean, Tiffany, those are optics that Republicans have to deal with now that kind of Trump, President Trump is calling the shots. He's telling them how to vote. He's telling them to vote no on this. But there were a lot of skeptics in the House who saw things in the bill that they felt like they could not possibly vote for. Yeah, and they're standing up for the American people. And I think, you know, to your point, Juan, the president has the authority to secure the border right now. He has that ability, and he's sort of walking that back now and saying, oh, well, now that it's election and now that I'm seeing these, you know, numbers, oh, maybe I will do something about the border. I mean, look at the young nursing student who was just killed at the University of Georgia. The American people are sick and tired of America not being safe and only seeing it get worse. Joe Biden has not laid out a plan to give any American hope or a vision for a future that their life is going to get better. Well, and now that he's talking about potentially using executive action, that's riling up a lot of yes. folks. On the left part of his party, a group of 150 uh, different groups wrote this letter to the president a couple of days ago, unhappy about what they're hearing he may do. They say this, many of the changes you are reportedly contemplating would not only stain your legacy, they would undo your own efforts to adhere to U.S. and international asylum law, return refugees to harm, and create widespread chaos and suffering at the border, Josh. <laughs> Uh, look, I think all of this is a day late and a dollar short for the Biden administration. I, I don't think that there is a single issue anywhere in America that has greater definition between the contrast of where Donald Trump is and how he views border security and where Joe Biden is and where he views border security. Everybody remembers those debate stages when Joe Biden was up with his hand in the air saying that he would open the border and he would provide all kinds of different services to illegal immigrants during the 2020 primary. They always remember the day one uh, rescind, uh, rescinding of the emergency uh, designation for the border. He got rid of uh, a stay in Mexico policy. All of this has been a deliberate, very serious act by the Biden administration. And now they see those polls and they want to get out from underneath it. None of that is going to help him in this particular issue. The problem is there and there is no way to undo it. All right, I want to make sure that we get to the fact that there was a primary election yesterday mm -hmm. in South Carolina. I want to put up the results here. Uh, the polling it had is spread as, as wide as 30, 35 points between President Trump and Nikki Haley. It, it looks like it ended up at about 20 points. Um, Susan, that's still quite a blowout. <laughs> but as Nikki Haley's folks say, she always outperforms the polls. Yeah, it's 20 points in her home state. Mm -hmm. It is really hard to spin this as anything but a demonstration of Donald Trump's hold on this nomination. There is no longer, with the South Carolina primary over, there is no longer any kind of credible path for Nikki Haley to win the nomination this time. But the Republican Party has a pretty long history of nominating people when they run 
the second time you think about Ronald Reagan or John McCain or, or Bob Dole or George H.W. Bush. And it seems to me that Nikki Haley at this point is probably playing a long game. Well, and to that point, Politico says this kind of that there may be an I told you so moment why she's sticking around, said in a scenario in which Trump loses in November, Haley is sure to be viewed in a different light. Her message will have been validated. The party would be coming off four successive election disappointments, all of which would be linked to Trump. But Josh, at this point, does the current GOP base want to hear that? I mean, they no. seem heavily Trump. I don't know if he if he loses in 2020 or excuse me, in 24, whether they're going to be open to this argument from her. Like I told you, this was going to happen. Well, look, I think any time if if the Republican Party were to lose, certainly there would be changes after four successive elections. Now, whether Nikki Haley's the beneficiary of that, I guess that remains to be seen. But I also think an additional motivation for Nikki Haley here is we've got the most dynamic political environment that I think we've ever seen in America. You have two basic octogenarians as the nominees for both parties. You have the enter of a courtroom and 91 different indictments on one side. You've got a president, sitting president, that is diminished by the day. If you're just hanging around for a while, you're likely to see some things. I can't imagine that that's not part of the calculus that she's had going forward. Well, and Juan, this week her camp is pointing to this Marquette Law School um, poll that has her head-to-head up 18 points on Biden. So how happy are you, Democrats, that she doesn't look like she's going to be the nominee? Well, I think that, you know, I, I hear Republicans joke all the time, Democrats are the biggest boosters of Donald Trump. They want Trump, right, because Nikki Haley said it's up. I mean, clearly... You know, the negative campaigning has not started from Democrats against Nikki Haley. Uh, so we just have to see where that goes. But I keep in mind, picking up on Josh's point about how dynamic this is, that, you know, Trump hasn't won 50 percent in Iowa, New Hampshire. And the fact that she gets 40 percent running against what is essentially an incumbent Republican president, I don't know. But to remind folks, too, in South Carolina, Democrats could vote in that primary yesterday. We don't know how much of that uh, showed up for Nikki Haley. Our panel, thank you very much. We'll see you next Sunday. But up next, a children's book out this week hopes to recruit more African-American kids to become doctors. We talk with a woman who spearheaded the project about why this cause is so important to her. Next. Okay, everyone. A new children's book will be released this week with the goal of inspiring African-American children to consider becoming doctors. Willis Watson is a wannabe is the story of a young boy who ponders a career in the medical field after seeing someone who looks like him caring for his grandfather. It's the brainchild of Dana Dornsife, the founder of the Lazarex Cancer Foundation. She's worked for decades to connect underserved cancer patients with care. Dana joined me this week to discuss how she hopes this book will close a gap. It's our Sunday special. Welcome to Fox News Sunday. Um, what a charming, wise, inspiring book. It is so sweet, and every character has such a positive message. Why was it important to you to get this book done? At Lazarex Cancer Foundation, we do a lot of work in underserved communities of color. And one of the messages that I hear all the time in relation to seeking out medical care is, I wish I could see a doctor like me. And um, a friend of mine um, who lives in Philadelphia, he's African-American man, he said, you know, Dana, only 500 at the time students who are in medical school are black out of like 40,000. Mm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, like this is a whole nother barrier that I hadn't even thought about. I knew of an author, Carmen Bogan. Um, who is an African-American woman. Um, she wrote a, a book about a young um, African-American boy. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is 
perfect for mm -hmm. Carmen. And so I just picked up the phone and gave her a call, and our 20-minute scheduled conversation turned into two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. And literally, that's how um, Willis Watson was born. So Willis has a number of heroes and people to look up to in this book. His grandfather, who is a war hero, who then ends up in the hospital. But then little Willis sees a doctor that looks like him. Willis was actually um, very frightened by being in the hospital, in the medical setting, very uncomfortable. Um, and then in walks this you know, African-American man who is so kind to Willis, but also is taking care of his gramps. And um, that really made a very positive impression on Willis. And he thought, wow, you know, maybe there is an opportunity for me to become a doctor. And he may never have had that thought had he not been in the presence of an African-American doctor. Are we making progress on that? Are the numbers improving? Are people feeling like medical school is a good option for them? You know, it's something that we really need to pay attention to because African-American black population is disproportionately impacted, especially by cancer. They make up 13% of our population and yet, you know, only 5% of, of doctors are African-American. Well, Willis is such a great illustration and a lovable character that I think everyone in this book is a lovable character that you'll want to spend more time with. So, Dana, thank you very much for spending time with us. To thank explain you. It. Thank you so much. Willis Watson is a wannabe will be released Tuesday. You can get it wherever you like to buy your books. And if you want to check out Dana Dornsife's Lazarex Cancer Foundation, visit Lazarex. It's L-A-Z-A-R-E-X dot org. She's there to help. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.